on that, and you can make that happen. Um, all right, so guys, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And this morning, I'm going to try to have a lot of discussions, so keep this thing moving so you guys can stay engaged. So I want to give a quick review. Um, we've been in the book of Revelation talking about these seven churches that Jesus Christ is speaking through the Apostle John, and he's written this letter to these seven churches through the Apostle John. And if you recall, John had a vision at an island called Patmos. And John saw this really cool vision of Jesus Christ. And Jesus began to reveal to him different messages to different churches throughout the, this part of the world in western Turkey is where we are for these seven churches. So here's a summary of what has been said so far. First, it was the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus had, if you remember, um, a problem. They had right beliefs, but they had no love. They had right doctrine, but they did not have love for those that were around them. So um, the, the letter that was addressed to them addressed that issue. The church at Smyrna had, they were um, one of the few churches in, out of these seven that Jesus did not actually rebuke directly. And so they were actually faithful to the end. Um, they're undergoing persecution, and, and they were faithful all the way to the end of their persecution. Then the church at Pergamum. This church had the opposite problem of Ephesus. They had good deeds, but they had bad doctrine, bad theology. These are the ones that are just like all compassion, all grace, all mercy, all love, but they don't have correct belief and correct doctrine and correct theology. So opposite of what Ephesus struggled with. And so today we come to the church of Thyatira. Now Thyatira is very similar to Pergamum. In fact, exactly like Pergamum. And so today we're going to take a little bit of a different bent. We're going to talk about um, what the word, they were very tolerant towards sin in their body, in the church. And so we're going to talk about this issue of tolerance and what it looks like for Christians. And so just to warn you, like this message has nothing to do with Mother's Day. So this is not a Mother's Day message. This is totally, this is actually kind of a hard hitting deal. I'm like, man, this is kind of a weird deal to do this in front of 40 people, but we'll we'll give it a shot. Yeah, so... Um, so maybe you guys are the ones that need to hear this because you guys all hate your moms. I don't know, but, um, but we'll see. Um, so, uh, we're talking about tolerance today. And so to set things up, I want to drill down a little bit deeper this morning on how we addressed Pergamum last week. And, um, so today we're looking at tolerance. And so the question is, should Christians be tolerant? And if so, in what ways? And I want to frame our discussion this morning by letting you watch a video um, with a guy named Mark Driscoll and a guy on CNN named Pierce Morgan. So if we have that, you can hit the next slide. Make sure we have volume good for this as well. So let's watch this video. Too many people in the world of religion take it too seriously. Is that part of the problem? I think... We should take Jesus seriously. We should take the Bible seriously. Probably shouldn't take ourselves nearly as seriously, and that's how I approach it. Do you think you're a tolerant kind of guy? I love people very much, and it's... it's that's not the same thing. It, well, it's how do you disagree sometimes with people that you love? That's that's a very difficult issue for everybody, but for a pastor in particular, because... you preach tolerance. I preach that we should love our neighbor, that we should accept the tolerance in particular. You keep hammering it. What, what do you mean by tolerance? Tolerating people who may have... A lifestyle or a belief that you don't agree with. Yeah, we have to. And that's when Jesus says, love your neighbor, um, you know, he knows you're not going to agree with all your neighbors, but he wants you to love them, to seek good for them, to care for them. So what, what did you make of the whole Kirk Cameron 
um, scandal as it's become, where he, you know, for 15 minutes here, he sat here espousing what I think he thought were perfectly normal mm-hmm. Christian views, but he did it in a way that people saw as really very bigoted to all gays. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that? To be honest with you, I haven't seen the whole thing. So I, you know what he said. I, I, I saw some of the Twitter and, you know, some of the blogging and stuff, but that's not always the best snapshot of the full context of the conversation. Um, so I, I don't know, well, to be I, honest I, with you. Okay, I mean, do you think that homosexuality is a sin? The Bible says on six occasions... What, what do you think? I believe that all sex outside of heterosexual marriage, so me as a teenager having sex before marriage, that was wrong. People looking at pornography is wrong. Single people having sex is wrong. Homosexuality is wrong. So there's a long list of things that the right, Bible says Given that eight states in America now have legalized gay marriage, mm-hmm. that's fine, right? Well, no. I mean, it's amazing because there were anti-sodomy laws and anti-fornication laws on the books just a few generations ago. But I mean, no one's taking much account of the anti-fornication laws, are Yeah, they? I, d- I don't want to be the one to enforce those laws or no, go around. But my point is, it, you know, the, the Bible is what it is. It's an, an extraordinary book which has right. governed people's moral and personal behaviors now for thousands of, thousands years. of years. However, uh-huh. like everything in life, shouldn't it be dragged kicking and screaming into each modern era and be adapted like the American Constitution? Yeah. Because I mean, my, my view about this is, is not that I don't respect Christians or Catholics or whoever who, who absolutely swear by every word in here. It's just that I just don't believe anyone who's genuinely Christian should be spouting bigoted opinions about sections of the community for their sexuality. Well, I think when it comes to the Bible, you've got three options. Take it, I believe what it says. Leave it, I don't believe what it says. Or change it. Or adapt, or adapt the which would be the changing for a modern era. Would be the changing of it. That's exactly what, for example, Thomas Jefferson did. He literally sat down Mm. in the White House with scissors and cut the parts out that he didn't feel should be in there. All right. So I know we've talked about this issue a lot in the last few weeks with the uh, homosexual marriage and those kind of things. But my point this morning is not to sort of hammer that issue. The point is to just show you how, um, in, in all kinds of issues that Christianity sort of can sort of clash with the culture around us. So go ahead and do your first uh, two questions at your tables. Go ahead and do questions one and two. Lights, please. A little bit higher in the, in the room, please. Thank you. Just questions one and two. All right, we'll have some more discussion as we go throughout this morning, but um, I want to ask the question or just raise an issue for you. Uh, so how would you answer that question about yourself? Are you a tolerant person? If someone asked you the question, are you, do you think you're tolerant? How would you answer the question? Would you answer, well, yeah, about some things or not about other things? Um, so it's a very complex issue. So we're going to attempt to understand this, this topic today. But I want, I want to point something out to you that I think is really important. Obviously, in the world that we live in today, if you say that you believe this book is true, you're going to be considered uh, prideful, arrogant, self-righteous. That's how people are going to see you. Now, I'm not complaining this morning that, you know, oh, why can't they love us? Why can't they accept us? I'm not, I'm not upset about that part of it this morning. But I just want to point out an inconsistency in how our world thinks so that you don't fall for it whenever they present it to you. That's my point this morning in, in trying to bring this up. But if you believe this book is true, you'll be seen as, as arrogant, self-righteous, and prideful because, you know what, many Christians are. Many Christians are. And so if you just say that, yeah, you believe this book and it's authoritative over our lives, and so I believe what it says, and I believe what it says has power and authority over my life and over everyone's life, people are going to look at you and say, well, that's an arrogant thing to say. But here's the inconsistency I want to point out 
that our culture believes, and it's this. They're going to look at you and say, you're prideful for believing that this is true, but they're going to turn around and say, but if you believe that your beliefs, your thoughts, and your feelings trump this book, they're going to see that as the more humble position. And it makes no sense. It makes no sense how someone can say, yeah, I believe that my thoughts, my feelings, my personal beliefs should trump this book, and yet somehow that idea is considered the more humble position in our world today. And so I say that to you, not to be upset, not to say, you know, how can they think that, how can they say that, because I just, I know that's just where they're at, but so that you don't fall for the same idea when it's presented to you. You don't fall for it. And so this morning, we're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in uh, verse 18. I'm going to try to go pretty quickly so you guys can get some more discussion here. But look at verse 18. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. So again, Jesus goes back to the vision initially he gave to, to John at Patmos. And he takes a part of that vision and he relates it to the church he's speaking to. And so what we see in this passage, he focuses on two things. He says, the words of the Son of God, meaning Jesus, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. And so what he's trying to communicate to Thyatira is that he knows, um, he can see into their minds, into their hearts with these, it's a really stark picture of eyes like a flame of fire. This is like Jesus that means business. This is not tame Jesus. This is feet that are burnished with bronze. This is a, a Jesus who is ready to bring judgment if he has to, if there's not repentance in this church. And we also know that the city of Thyatira was a blue-collar city, a city full of metal workers. So there's two images, flame of fire, eyes like fire, and burnished bronze. These fit with the culture of, of the city that he's talking to. Uh, Thyatira was a, was a blue-collar city. They had lots of metal workers. They also were known for um, uh, manufacturing fabric and those kinds of things. In fact, what they had in their city were something called guilds. And these guilds were an important part of their economy. So what would happen is a mom and a dad might have a business, and metalworking business, and they would pass that business down to their children and then to their children's children. And the guild was, was like a combination social club, workers' union, fraternity, sorority, religious group, like all wrapped up into one. So imagine you work with these people that are family and, and other relatives and extended people, and you have connection with them through work, but you also worship together, and you have this religion with them together. And so there are a lot of idol worship going on. So each guild may have their own form of idol worship based on the trade or job that they were in. And this is the setup economically in Thyatira. Look at verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So again, he encourages them just like he did Pergamum. He says, I know your works. I know you have love. You have faith. You, you are serving each other. Um, you are patiently enduring one another. And he even says that your current works exceed the first. So you're growing in these good works. You're growing in your good deeds. But then, of course, um, what does Jesus always do? He brings um, a big backhand in verse 20. So look at verse 20. He says, but I have this against you. 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Is that ever a good name to hear? The name that just sounds bad, right? Any friends by the name Jezebel that you know of? You have any friends by that name? No one names their kid Jezebel, right? Everyone just knows that's a negative name. So that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. So this this woman is actually not Jezebel, literally, but what Jesus is doing, there is a woman in that congregation, in that church, who is leading people astray into sexual immorality, also into idolatry. There's a real female doing that. And so Jesus refers to her like she's a Jezebel, like the one from the Old Testament. If you recall, she was married to Ahab. She was a, an, he was an Israeli king. And he married a woman named Jezebel, and she led that nation into idol worship. It's a reference back to that Jezebel, and this person has the same kind of attitude that she had when it came to idol worship. So she calls herself a prophet, which means she's probably part of the church. She's not on the outside. She's on the inside. And um, I want you to catch this. There's a difference between someone who attends the church and someone who's leading in the church. If someone is just coming to our church and they're struggling with certain sin issues, we have an open door policy of like, hey, come in. Like We're going to trust that Christ will change you. That's our hope and our desire. But if someone is leading in the church, then the way the church handles that sin issue is completely different. If someone's in leadership position in our church, imagine someone in charge of an adult uh, class up in the main building. If they're teaching things like sexual immorality is okay and certain idol worship is okay, we're going to have an issue with that as leaders, right? We're going to have a big issue with that, and we're going to try to address that. The problem, though, was... The church in Thyatira was allowing this woman, this prophetess, to continue in her sinful ways. And so she is, um, she may not be getting people to outright deny Christ. Like she's not coming to them and saying, you know, hey, turn away from Christ and turn to Satan. This is not what she's doing. But she's probably getting them to mix in idol worship and sexual immorality into their Christianity. So here's the way this would look today. This might be someone who says today, yeah, I'm a Christian. I study the Bible. I believe what it says is true. I say I worship Jesus Christ, but I also live with someone I'm not married to or sexually involved. And yeah, it's okay because, you know, God understands. I mean, we're, we're committed, just not married yet. Like we're, we're committed in our hearts. God understands. This is the way in which it would take its form today, I think, in our culture. And let me tell you that the scenario I just described to you is rampant in the church today. It's rampant, I would say, even in our own church. That attitude of like, yeah, of course. I can grab my Bible, this book I say I believe, and I can take it to church. I can, I can sit in the chair and listen to someone preach and even say from the pulpit that this kind of thing is wrong, but then walk out the door and just say, you know what? I mean, God understands. I can mix in some some immorality into my current Christian faith. And, you know, God, Jesus understands. He's gracious. He's loving. He's compassionate. But the weird thing is we don't see that in this passage. We see a Jesus who is ready to come and bring his, um, his, uh, his judgment to this church if they don't repent from, from their sin. And so um, one of Satan's biggest lies, I think, in our culture is... He tries to convince us to take something that God calls sexual sin 
and he relabels it progress in our culture. And we see this all around us. Any time a Christian comes out and says, uses the word sexual immorality, doesn't that word just sound dated? Doesn't it just sound old-fashioned? But it's in the Bible. Jesus used the word. In fact, I was at the gym last week talking to a friend of mine who, who would say he's a Christian. He goes here to our church sometimes, and I'm trying to dialogue with him and talk with him, and he would say he's a Christian. But in our conversation last week, he made it known. He's like, yeah, I mean, people, people sleep around before they get married. That's just what they do. Almost like he was just saying, that's just what happens. That's just what people do, right? Sex before marriage? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I understand. That's, that's just what people do now. And, and, and so, and of course, Piers Morgan says, well, yeah, certain sexual things, that's progress. And if you say you're against that or the Bible's against that, well, you're someone who's trying to hold back civilization and not let civilization progress to where it needs to go. And so Satan has done something very smooth. He has convinced many people that aren't believers and many people that are so-called Christians that if they, if they say that they're against certain things sexually, well, you're not, you're not progressive. You're not with the times. Like, you're old-fashioned. Even just saying the word sexual immorality sounds old-fashioned. Even I, when I say the word, I, I find myself going, I probably should pick a different word than that, right? Because that sounds so old. And yet, that's the words that Jesus uses in the passage. And so, um, Mark Driscoll, in a recent sermon, he says um, that some people, including Christians, try to change the word of God. Like Morgan said that a while ago, Pierce Morgan said, well, can't we just adapt it and change it so it can bring it up to speed with the, with the modern times? And so Driscoll's statement was very simple. He said, let's not change the word of God. Let's allow the word of God to change us. And so many people get drawn into this idea that we've got to adapt the scriptures and change them to fit what we want to do. And the reality is, God wants to use the scriptures to change us. If he is absolute, if he's sovereign, then the scriptures need to change us, not vice versa. And so um, with that, I want you to go ahead and do your questions uh, three through five. Go ahead and do questions three through five at your tables. All right, so I want to make sure we don't push this thing too late today, because you guys need to go have lunch with your moms in a few minutes. So um, I want to... We'll have a few more questions here at the very end, but I want to focus on just one word in the passage, and it's the word tolerate. We'll spend the rest of our time talking about what this word tolerance or tolerate really means um, and what it should look like in the life of a Christian. And so I want to ask, give you three ways in which Christians should be tolerant. So when the question we started with was, should, should Christians be tolerant? Well, yeah, in certain ways they should be. And here's three ways in which Christians should be tolerant. The first way is this, legal tolerance. Go to my next slide. Legal tolerance. Uh, not Actually, I'm sorry. Let me, I meant the next slide after that. My bad. So legal tolerance, allowing other religions to legally exist in our country. And this is pretty obvious. It should be obvious anyway. But there are some extreme Christians that might say, no, we shouldn't allow this kind of tolerance because um, we need to make this uh, from the top down a a legislated Christian nation, meaning that everyone should be forced to be Christian. Well, you can't force religion. You can't force belief on people. That's what some Muslim places have tried to do. And we see where that has gone. It goes very, very badly. So we would definitely say that, yes, legal tolerance is good. It's good that we have freedom of religion. It allows us to practice our faith. 
and allows others to practice their faith. The idea should not be that Christianity should be imposed. We want to try to persuade and propose our faith, but not impose it from above and say, you have to call yourself a Christian or we're going to kill you. We don't operate that way. So legal tolerance is a good thing. The second thing is social tolerance. This is being friendly towards people who disagree with you. Something else that Christians should say that they should tolerate. We should be friendly and loving and compassionate towards those that don't agree with you. That means if you have a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu family relative or friend, that should be a good thing. And once again, you should you should be socially accepting of them. Now, does it mean that you just say, no, no, it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what I believe. We're all going to the same God. No, I'm not saying that. You still try to persuade. You still try to convince. You still have the conversation, the dialogue. But socially, you still accept them. You love them, care for them. Thirdly, theological tolerance. Now, let me expl- this is kind of a confusing one, so let me explain this. You should be somewhat theologically tolerant of other views, even within the Christian faith. I'll explain what I mean by this. Defining that means keeping fellowship with other believers who hold differing views about secondary issues. Let me tell you what I mean by secondary issues. A secondary issue would is a long list of secondary issues. But here's some examples. Things like age of the earth. If I meet a Christian who says, I believe the, the world is millions of years old, and they believe in some, that God used some form of evolution to bring things about. Now, do I agree with that? No. But can they be a Christian and say that? I'd say that's a secondary issue. The age of the earth is a secondary issue. Now, some of you might go like, wait, it is? Different sermon, different day. But let me tell you that I think that that's not one that God requires for salvation. Right? If someone has a differing take on Genesis 1 through 3, I'm not going to say, oh, you can't be a Christian and believe that way, that it says that way. No, I'm not going to say that. It's a secondary issue. Another secondary issue, does God choose us or do we choose him? The whole predestination and election debate. That's a secondary issue. Secondary issue. Baptism. How, how we should baptize people. Do we do it as infants? Or do we do it as, the, as, as adults? Or how do we do baptism? Secondary issue. Their view on the end times. Speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues. We go on and on and on. These are secondary issues. Now, primary issues, things that do matter, would be things like Jesus is God. We've got to agree on that. Um, how someone is saved, is it by works or by faith or a combination of the two? I say it's by faith. That's a primary issue. Resurrection of Jesus. If someone says, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in the literal, physical resurrection of Christ, then I would say, well, you can't call yourself a Christian then. 1 Corinthians 15 says that as much. Resurrection of Jesus. Reality of hell. If someone says that, you know, all roads lead to God and they believe in some kind of universalism, then I would say, I don't know, you can't call yourself a Christian and say there's not some kind of divine judgment for those who reject Christ. I don't see how you can get there with the Bible. Authority of the Bible. These are primary issues, not secondary issues. So we can be tolerant of other people that are believers if it's a secondary issue, but not a primary issue. Now I want to talk briefly about how Christians should be intolerant. Go to my next slide. These are ways in which Christians should be intolerant. I listened to a few of these a while ago. Heretical tolerance. That means 
coming against so-called Christians who try to change Scripture. Once again, some examples. Do they say that certain things are not sinful that the Bible clearly says are sinful? Do they deny things like Jesus being God? Do they deny the literal physical resurrection of Christ? Do they teach that we're saved by faith and by works, not by faith alone? Primary issue. Do they try to explain away parts of the Bible that are hard to accept? Things like God's eternal judgment and things like hell. Those are things I would say someone has crossed over into what we call heresy, false teaching, about a primary issue, and therefore Christians should not tolerate that kind of thing. These are primary things. And the last way in which Christians should be intolerant would be what I call immoral tolerance. Now, I'll be clear, though, to define this, coming against so-called Christians who are living in open, willful sin and are not repentant. Like I said before, we are the doors are open to anyone and everyone in the body of Christ, no matter what their background is. But if someone is calling themselves a Christian and they are living out their sin publicly, proudly, willful, disobedient, rebellion against God, then as believers we are called to come to them and say, let's talk about this. Like this goes against Scripture. Now do we just go, hey, you know what, get out of the church, boom. Like, we, don't, we don't do that that way. We love them, care for them, try to persuade them and convince them. And at some point though, biblically, we may have to exercise church discipline, meaning saying, you know what, you're no longer a part of us, not because of us, but because of you and your lack of willingness to repent. And that's also biblical at some point. That's down the road. But we have to come at this person and say, you're destroying yourself, you're destroying other people, and if we didn't do that, that would be unloving. It's unloving to not speak truth to someone. And so, um, again, this idea of immoral intolerance is actually for people that claim to be believers, not for unbelievers. The doors are wide open. If an unbeliever says, I want to come check out the church at TBC, I don't care how they're living. Come check it out. We're going to sit here and try to persuade you and convince you that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he is the way. Sit there every week for a year, living in your sin. We will love you and care for you. But once you say you're a Christian now, then yes, at some point we're going to have to come against you and say the way that you're walking is sinful and against God's word, the word that you say that you believe. And we're called as believers to do that. Look at verse 21. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each according to your works. So I want you to latch on to one phrase where Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time. So even this leader who's leading people astray, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You know, people ask in our culture a lot, why does God allow all this evil and suffering? Why does God allow evil to exist? And when I saw that verse this week, verse 21, where Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, it it hit me that maybe God allows evil to continue sometimes 
because he's waiting for people to repent. He's waiting for people to come to him. He's waiting for someone to share the gospel with them. He's waiting for someone to approach even a Christian who's living and walking in sin and lovingly confront them in their sin. Maybe God allows some kinds of evil because he's waiting for people to turn to him. And in the middle of that waiting, things are going to look pretty messy. Things are going to look pretty jacked up and destructive. And Jesus says he's waiting for her to repent, but she has not repented. And so now he has to come against her and come against this church because they are embracing the sin. And I want to point something else out to you. Because here's the temptation for us. Sometimes you and I get so caught up in sin, and we expect there to be this immediate lightning bolt from God judging our sin, but God rarely does that. And what your temptation might be is when you're in the middle of that sin, whatever that sin is, is to think, you know what, I mean, I thought God was going to bring quick judgment on this in my life, but he hasn't, so I'm just going to keep living this way. And you get lulled to sleep by the inactivity, perceived inactivity of God. And you get lulled to sleep and you think, yeah, I got this. This isn't really messed up. My life's not messed up. My life's okay. I've got one foot here with Christ and one foot over here with what I'm doing over here. And you get lulled to sleep. And I'm just going to warn you today that that might be God just giving you time to repent, hoping that you'll come to repentance. Don't be deceived into thinking that God doesn't care about it or he isn't going to eventually judge that sin. You're being lulled to sleep thinking that, well, yeah, yeah, I got this. My life's not that bad. It's okay. But this verse is pretty clear because eventually Jesus does judge the sin. And this might just be the calm before the storm. Because eventually this person's life becomes a train wreck. And even the train wreck is God's lovingly intervening into their life, hopefully bringing them to repentance. And so I hate to end abruptly this morning, but I know it's late. And so I want to have you guys just finish up with your last two questions. Go into your last two questions, and you guys can pray when you're finished. Um, Go into your discussion.